we're going to go uh, till uh, 4.30 and then uh, take a few questions and then break for dinner and uh, then come back this evening and, and wrap things up. I'm moving back into uh, the presentation for last evening now that we've sort of taken a bit of an excursus. Uh, looked at some of the history in regards to the uh, Quran and the compilation of the Quran, the text of the Quran. Um, now we need to look at what the Quran says specifically about the primary issues that divide us. Uh, once again, my, my hope and desire is to be able to uh, present the gospel clearly uh, to Muslim people. And uh, as I did say last night, and I'll emphasize once again, um, the uh, about 85% of the world's population of Muslims are Sunni. Uh, a smaller proportion, obviously, are Shiite, and then there's other groups along with them. And then you have differences between, amongst all those groups, you'll have lots of arguments between Sunnis on things uh, as well, uh, fighting with each other about this, that, or the other thing. But uh, the people you're going to be talking to most of the time who are going to be uh, addressing the issue of what separates Christians and Muslims uh, if you've raised the issue, then it, you know, they might just be speaking about what they've been taught. Uh, but if they raise the issue, there, are, there is something called Dawah. Uh, Dawah is, it, it's interesting, uh, Dawah is a calling to Islam. And what is involved in Dawah is a mixture of what we would identify as evangelism and apologetics. They don't differentiate between the two in that way. Uh, it is all a calling to Islam and hence a, a defense, for example, of the claims of the prophethood of Muhammad, uh, providing a defense for issues relating to uh, the prophet's wives, Aisha, things like that, and even that's a major difference between Sunnis and Shias. But uh, that kind of defensive thing, as well as then the offensive thing, uh, which would be allegations of changes in the text of the Bible and uh, the perfection of the Quran over against the imperfection of the Bible. In fact, one of the, one of the uh, favorite uh, non-Christian, even though many of them call him a Christian because he once was one, one of the favorite non-Christian authors of the Muslims that I've debated over the past number of years has been Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman's books were on if you remember last night I showed you a clip of my debate from Biola with Shabir Ali uh, a couple of the books on, on Shabir's desk were by Bart Ehrman I debated Zulfikar Ali Shah at Duke University and uh, uh, all his books were by Bart Ehrman uh, and so Bart's their, their favorite go-to source guy uh, which is interesting because in that he's an agnostic uh, which, would, which would make him an unbeliever but be it as it may um, Dawah is the is the the calling to to Islam, and uh, those individuals uh, can be very very aggressive in their presentation of their faith over against Christianity, especially when we turn to the text of the Quran. Uh, one of the most important surahs, in fact, in the Hadith literature, uh, Muhammad is said to have said that the quoting of this surah uh, is the equivalent of quoting a third of the Quran. Uh, is Surah Al-Ikhlas, uh, which means the sincerity, the purity. It's one of the only surahs that is named in such a way that the word found in the title is not found in the text of the surah itself. Now remember, I told you in the last session there are 114 surahs in the current edition of the Quran, and they are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. So surah 112 would be one of the shortest, and you have all of it on the screen right here. And while there is no creedal statement like a Nicene Creed or an Apostles' Creed or something like that 
in, in to be found uh, in in Islam in that sense. I mean, uh, the concept of tawhid and the the purity and simplicity and oneness of, of God is extremely important. Uh, in the text of the Quran, this is as close as you're going to get to a creedal statement uh, as you're going to be able to find. And you'll notice it says, Say he is Allah, the one and only, Allah, the eternal absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Now you will notice as you look at it uh, that the first, second, and fourth ayahs uh, sound very much like material that we could derive from, say, the book of Isaiah. Uh, Before me there is no God formed, there should be none after me, there is none like unto me. These are all statements that God has made in Isaiah or in Jeremiah, in, in texts like that. It is a, is a common biblical claim in regards to the nature of the one true God, true God Yahweh. Uh, but then you have the third ayah. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten. Lem yelad walem yulad. The three-letter root, Y-L-D, yalad, in Hebrew, in the prophecy of the coming of Jesus, found in Isaiah chapter 9. Remember, you can sing it along with Handel's Messiah. Uh, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The child that is born is a yelad, and he is yelad. He is born to us. It's normal terminology for human birth. But then it says a son is given. I think there's a lot more to Isaiah 9 than than sometimes we, we think. But it's the same root that is found here in the Arabic. He neither begets nor is he begotten. Uh, I took my class to the mosque uh, at ASU, like I mentioned last evening, and I uh, specifically asked the imam there, would you say that the third ayah of Surah Al-Ikhlas is in specific reference to a denial of Christian belief? And he said, oh, there's no question of that. If this is central to Islam's self-understanding, it's found in its, in its own sacred scriptures, it is significant to recognize that 25% of the material in this one surah is specifically in response to Christian belief and is fundamentally a denial of Christian belief. I can't, I can't forget uh, this one imam in Indonesia a few years ago uh, who uh, said, you know, we know how there could be peace between Christians and Muslims. You need to understand that you are ascribing a son to Allah. That is offensive to us. If you'll just stop saying Jesus is the Son of God, we'll have peace. So in other words, if you just stop being Christians, we'll have peace. You know, I mean, that, that, but he meant it. He, he, he just did not seem to understand how central to the Christian faith the relationship the Father and the Son is. However, the question is, did the author of the Quran understand what Christians believe regarding the relationship of Father and the Son? Look at all the texts we're going to look at. You can decide for yourself. I don't believe that he did. And one thing is for certain. If Allah is the author of the Quran, even if the Trinity is false, Allah knew what it was by 632. And there is no reason then, if this came down from heaven, if this is a revelation from God, comes to Jibreel, there is no reason why it would misrepresent uh, the doctrine of the Trinity while denying the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are liberal Muslims who say, well, actually, I don't think it's about the Trinity at all, and so on and so forth. I'll try to remember to make some comments about that as we're, about that as we're going along. But realize uh, right from the bat that we need to understand that since Islam comes historically in the life of Muhammad after Judaism and Christianity, from their perspective, it came before. But since the last of the prophets allegedly comes after uh, the Old and New Testament, then 
there is interaction with our beliefs. And therefore, from our perspective, here's a wonderful opportunity to find out whether the Quran really is what it claims to be. Because if that interaction is inaccurate, if it's based upon ignorance, if it's based upon what, what some young boy from Mecca would have figured out about Christianity going on caravans and meeting with Christians, rather than being an insightful, accurate uh, refutation of Christian belief, well, that tells you a little something about what the Quran really is, rather than what uh, people say it is. So here's Surah Al-Ikhlas, Surah 112. Now, you need to understand a particular concept uh, there is a, another Arabic word that you need to learn, and that is the term shirk. Shirk. Now, shirk in modern Arabic has a standard uh, usage similar to corporation. It's, it's joining together, and so there's, there's secular uses of the term. But religiously, shirk is the one sin that you can commit that if you die upon shirk, if you die as a mushrik, Allah will never forgive you for this sin. In fact, let me just give you an example from the Hadith literature. Um, Abu Talib was Muhammad's uncle in Mecca. And as I mentioned, when Muhammad became a prophet and began preaching monotheism, preaching against the various gods in the Kaaba and things like that, didn't make him the most popular member of the Quraysh tribe, which is a, a very powerful tribe there in Mecca. Abu Talib protected Muhammad, and one could argue that uh, without Abu Talib's protection of him, uh, that Muhammad might not have been able to have survived those first 12 years there in, in Mecca. And so when he was dying, Muhammad went to his uncle and begged him to make the confession, to say la ilaha illallah, to, to, to say there is only one God, Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And at the same time, his family members were there saying, do not abandon your ancestors, do not abandon the religion of your, of your forefathers. There's this tussle going on for this man's soul, in essence, right there on his deathbed. And Abu Talib did not make a confession as a Muslim. He died as a mushrik. And so, again, and I will emphasize this in light of the questions, the Sunni Muslims uh, that I have the most interaction with uh, will point out that, according to Hadith literature, Muhammad will be given two special abilities of intercession, which is interesting. When we as Christians think about how Muhammad's role has grown in the evolution of Islamic theology, um, he is given two roles of intercession. On the last day, uh, Muhammad is allowed to intercede for his people, for his ummah, uh, so that uh, they will be brought out of hellfire. There will actually be Muslims who go into hellfire, but then they are brought out of hellfire uh, and into paradise. And it's a, in some of the Hadith stories, it's a three-stage intercession on the part of Muhammad. So Muhammad is given the ability to intercede for them, which eventually leads to all of them being brought out of hellfire and, and into paradise. But there is one other form of intercession that Muhammad is given, and he has been allowed, uh, because you cannot pray for a mushrik. According to the Hadith literature, Allah will not hear a prayer. You are forbidden to pray for someone. Muhammad was not allowed to pray for his parents, who, who died as idolaters. Uh, but he was given one exception, he alone, 
was able to pray intercessorily for Abu Talib, for his uncle, who died as a mushrik. Um, Abu Talib has therefore been granted the least punishment in the hellfire. Abu Talib has the best spot in hell, I guess is the best way you can put it. And uh, does anyone know what Abu Talib's uh, punishment is? Not even you, huh? <laughs> You're just rolling your eyes, okay. Um, Abu Talib's punishment, according to Hadith literature, is that he is wearing sandals that are so hot that his brain boils. So that is the least punishment in hell, is that he wears sandals that are so hot that it causes his brains to boil. Um, and that is the result, directly, of Muhammad's intercession for him, that he has the best fate of anyone in, uh, in hell. If that gives you an idea of how serious shirk is, now, the reason I emphasize this is this is one of the greatest barriers you have to get over in speaking to the Muslim because the Muslim believes that what we do and what we believe about Jesus is shirk. We are associating with Allah, someone who is not Allah, and are worshiping Him. And that's the sin of shirk. Now, there are more, more moderate Muslims or liberal Muslims that would say, well, you know, not necessarily. We'll look at the text ourselves and see whether that's the case or not. Just like in our day, you have people who call themselves Christians, and the Bible is very clear about certain things, but they aren't very clear about certain things. Uh, in the same way, you'll have Muslims, whereas the, the, the Quranic text is very clear, they're not as clear as the Quranic text is. Uh, so we'll take a look at it. But sure, for example, Surah 31.13, O my dear son, ascribe no partners unto Allah. Lo, to ascribe partners unto Him is a tremendous wrong. To ascribe a partner, sure, to associate, uh, that is the tremendous wrong. Praise be to Allah who created the heavens and the earth and made the darkness and the light. Yet those who reject faith hold others as equal with their guardian Lord. Those who reject faith, those who are kafirs, unbelievers, kafar, to cover over, kafirs, unbelievers, they hold others as equal uh, with their guardian Lord. This is the sin of shirk. So let's start looking at these. And I just realized the one that I'm using here, I didn't. Uh, I have so many of these. I updated uh, one of them to Sahih International, but this looks like it's still, yeah, it's still Yusuf Ali. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll make comments as we go by when it uh, isn't a translation that I like. Uh, Surah 4, 47-48 O ye people of the book Al-Al-Kitab The Al-Al-Kitab sometimes refers to the Jews sometimes refers to the Christians sometimes refers to both and sometimes we're not sure What it means is that there were books that were sent down primarily the Torah and the Injil and so they are the people marked by the book and so we will be referred to as the Al-Al-Kitab the people of the book which I think is a wonderfully nice phrase. I, I will embrace that very happily, actually. And we're addressed quite often in the Quran. O people of the book, believe in what we have now revealed, which would be the Quran, confirming what was already with you before we change the faith and fame of some of you beyond all recognition and turn them hindwards or curse them as we curse the Sabbath breakers. Uh, there are stories in the Quran about the Sabbath breakers that were uh, cursed by Allah and uh, 
turned into monkeys, actually, as I recall. But um, uh, this is a terrible curse that came upon them. And notice that it, the, the idea is, believe what we have now revealed, confirming what was already with you. There is this concept of the consistency between what Allah has set down before and what He's sent down now. Well, that would make sense. I mean, if the Torah and the Angel were from the same God, there would have to be consistency in what they, these things teach. Now, modern Muslims, fully cognizant of the fundamental contradictions between the Quran and the Bible, think that the text of the Bible has been corrupted over time. It's been changed. We listen to Shabir Ali. Well, you know, Matthew has undergone, Mark's gone, undergone the same process as Matthew, and there's textual variants, and Mark went one, and so on and so forth. And that is the, the standard answer that you are given, is that, well, you know, there's been a corruption over time. But the interesting thing is, that you might want to just ask yourself a question. Does an honest reading of the Quran tell you that Muhammad himself believed that Torah and the Injil had been corrupted and were no longer in the possession of anyone? Uh, I think we will be able to see, if I, we have time to look at Surah 5, 47, 48, that's not the case. In fact, there are texts of the Quran that make no sense at all if that's the case. Well, if Muhammad believed that the Christians still contained, still had the Torah and the Injil. And there's one verse where, where Muhammad, it's very common in the, in, the, in the Quran for Muhammad to make the argument, if you think that this is not from God, then you come up with, with a surah like unto any surah in the Quran. Just try to. And most Muslims believe the Quran is so miraculous and it's so perfectly written that no one could ever write a surah like, like any surah in the Quran. Well, I think that's an incredibly subjective argument. And I can read the surah about the, the, uh, the elephants, for example, and go, I don't really find that overly overwhelming as far as its you know, alleged beauty or anything is concerned. But be it as it may, let's say, give, produce a surah like unto anything in the Quran. But it's interesting, there's one point where it actually joins the Torah to that. Produce any surah like what's in the Quran or in the Torah. Well, if you don't have the Torah, how could you do that? And I believe it was... Um, and it's either poverty or could to be, I forget which one of those sources, uh, narrates the story uh, where uh, Muhammad was sitting upon a cushion and the Torah was brought into his presence and he got up from the cushion and gave the cushion out for the Torah to be placed upon it. And when the Torah was placed upon it, he said, I believe what is in this book. Now, we know what the Torah said long before Muhammad came along. We have something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we know what the New Testament said long before Muhammad came along. Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Washingtonius, uh, Alexandrinus. We have P45. And you know, I, just, I, I was over in, uh, in Dublin uh, back in February and I got to see P45, P46, and P47. Uh, these are papyri from the 2nd century of major portions of the New Testament. And, and these were long before Muhammad ever came along. And so we know, what the New, we know what the Injil was before Muhammad came along. We know what existed in his day. So if it's been changed radically, it wasn't changed after then. And yet so much of what he says depends upon old people of the book. In, in fact, Muhammad... Most aren't aware of this. I'm going to try this evening to get to this. I keep saying all this, and I, then I talk so much, I'm not sure I'm going to get to all of it. 
I, I, I'm really starting to wonder how long I could go on this subject. And uh, it's dangerous to invite somebody in who's writing a book on a subject to talk about the thing he's writing in the book about. Um, but one of the one of the fascinating things is that the Quran claims that the Bible prophesies about Muhammad. How many of you knew that? How many of you knew the Bible prophesies about Muhammad? Okay. Oh, you two don't count. Um, and you know, I've done debates on this. I debated Shigar Ali in London on this. And this, is, this, to me, is the open and shut issue. I mean, there is... I know every single text that they've ever used and can blow every single one of them out of the water. There's not even a question about it. Linguistically, historically, you can't even... You can't even it's a no-starter. Uh, it's an excellent area to go into, but most Christians are like, you said what? But specifically, it is, it is said that the people of the book read in their scriptures about Muhammad. Well, we know what scriptures they were reading in 632 or 610 or however you want to put it. We can tell you exactly what they were reading. And in some of them, for example, they try to shoehorn Muhammad into the paraclete passages in John 14 and 16. That he's the Holy Spirit. And what they say is that the, the, the text has been changed. That is, instead of parakletos, which is the Greek, it's periklutos, the exalted one. Thinking that Greek is like, is like a Semitic language where the vowels you can just supply. It's not. The vowels are a part of the word. And there's, I even have a, I, I didn't bring it, but I have this tie. I am such a geek. Um, not only do I have lasers, but I also make ties. And uh, I have ties with different New Testament manuscripts on them and stuff like that, and they're all really cool. But I have this one tie from Codex Alexandrinus from John chapter 14. And right in the middle of the tie uh, is the section from John 14 where parakletos, the paraclete, is found. And I made it just for Muslims. So when they say, well, you know, the text has been changed. Well, you know, this was 200 years before Muhammad came along. And right there it says parakletos. Now, why would they have changed this before Muhammad came along? And most of them never looked at that and don't realize that in reality there's not the slightest bit of historical evidence, textually speaking, uh, that John 14 or 16 is ever saying. Muhammad is even told, if you doubt, Muhammad, if you have any doubts, ask the people who have been reading the scriptures before you. And the Halali Khan translation of the Quran, which has a lot of commentary from various Hadith sources, the Halali Khan actually puts in brackets, if you doubt that you are that your name is mentioned in their scriptures, ask the people who are reading the scriptures before you. Um, and so there's, there's uh, all sorts of, of issues come up when we have this issue of the people of the book and alleged, the relationship between the Quran and the Bible and the New Testament and things like that. So, coming back to this text, we're never going to get any of this done. People of the book, believe, or before we curse you, Allah forgiveth not that partners should be set up with him, but he forgiveth anything else to whom he pleaseth. To set up partners of the law is to divide the sin most heinous indeed. So, shirk, Allah will not forgive it. If you die as a mushrik, now don't get me wrong, because when we, when we hear about it, we will not forgive that. Shirk can be forgiven by your becoming a Muslim. Remember uh, Khalid Yasin last night? You know, whatever sins you've got as of tonight, your board is clear. Remember? Uh, shirk can be forgiven by becoming a Muslim. But if you die upon shirk, 
that will not be forgiven. Uh, and your abode will be uh, the hellfire. Same surah. O people of the book, commit no excesses in your religion. This is one of the primary arguments of the Quran is that while the Torah and the Injil were, you know, have been brought down, then Christians have, have gone beyond what these things actually say. Now that would seem to indicate the text is fine, you're misinterpreting it, you're going beyond what it actually says. But remember, there's no reason to believe that Muhammad had direct access to any of our scriptures at all. He never quotes from them. He does seem, seem to have a... a, a uh, he's heard them. So, for example, he knows the lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. How many of you know the phrase eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? How many of you can give me the exact reference in the Old Testament where it's found? See? We all know it, but we, don't necessarily, we haven't necessarily memorized the section that it's in, and that was a, a common part of law. And so... The knowledge of the writer of the Quran seems to be the knowledge of an individual who had encountered Jews and Christians, had heard stories sitting around campfires on caravans, but did not have access to the text. Now, you might ask the question, even if Muhammad could read Arabic, which most Muslims say he could not, but even if he could, had the Old or New Testaments been translated into Arabic at the time of his life? The answer is no. While there may have been portions that individual Christians had translated, the earliest manuscripts we have of both the Old and New Testaments are from the very end of the 9th century, from around the 890s. And Muhammad dies in 632. So uh, he wouldn't have had access to those scriptures in his own language, let alone in the original languages. And so it's understandable why there are some simple errors in the understanding of the author of the Quran in regards to the Bible that have produced some very interesting explanations on the part of those who would defend Islam. So the idea is here, you're committing an excess. You're going beyond what has been revealed. Nor say of a law aught but the truth. Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than a razul of a law, an apostle of a law. And his word, which he bestowed on Mary, and a spirit proceeding from him, so believe in Allah and his apostles. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what, especially a, um, his word which he bestowed on Mary. The normal interpretation of that is, well, Allah said be, and Jesus came into being. In the sense of, rather than the biblical concept of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and so on and so forth, it was just the creative act of the speak, spoken word. But that doesn't explain a spirit proceeding from him. I've heard some very interesting interpretations from people all along down the road here. But the point is, Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle of Allah. Now, the Sufis go beyond that. A lot of people go beyond that. But the idea is, he is an apostle. And to go beyond the idea of, of him being a Rasul is to commit excess. It's to go beyond what is allowed. And the concern is, then, say not, and this is Yusuf Ali, three. The term Trinity is never found in the Quran. The actual word Trinity is never found in the Quran. What you have is three. Say not three, desist. It will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Now, I have done, I've had the opportunity of being on the Aramaic Broadcasting Network a number of times, and 
you, you take phone calls from Muslims from literally all over the world, and and I will hear them saying, "Well, it, it doesn't say three what? It just simply says don't say three. All right." Say not three, desist, it will be better for you, for Allah is one Allah. Now what does that mean? Why say, for there is only one Allah? If what you're saying is, do not say three what? Gods. Do not say three gods. Do not associate anyone with God. Be a monotheist. It seems obvious, but it's amazing how people, well, you know, it's maybe not necessarily talking about that. Then notice this, glory be to him, for exalted is he above having a son. Exalted is he above having a son. Now keep that in mind. What is the nature of sonship according to the Quran? Just according to the Quran, letting the Quran speak for itself in its own language, in its own context. What's the nature of sonship? What is the nature? We're going to to look at some other texts. At least I hope I stuck them in here. I may have to look at a different presentation to stick them in here. Uh, What is the nature of the sonship that is being addressed here? To him belong all things in the heavens and on earth, and enough is the law to dispose of affairs. Christ, that saith not to serve and worship a law, nor to the angels those nearest to a law, those who disdain his worship and are arrogant, he will gather them all together unto himself to answer. So there is an argument found there. Christ, since he worshipped a law, served and worshipped a law, he cannot be a law. Of course, that's assuming Unitarianism. That's assuming there cannot be no incarnation. There, the Son did not, could not humble himself and take on human flesh and uh, not seeing the distinction between the Father and the Son and so on and so forth. But that is the understanding of the Quran and the argument that is placed there. In Surat al-Maidah, they do blaspheme. We saw this just in the last presentation, but I went over it rather quickly. They do blaspheme who say... Allah is Christ, the Son of Mary. Now, that's not normal Christian terminology. We normally don't say God is Christ. We say Christ is God because we're describing His nature. But we're not describing the entirety of the Godhead as one person. So there's, that's not the most accurate presentation. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Now, if you're going to try to find that in the Bible someplace, don't bother. It's not there. And it's always struck me as very odd that my Muslim opponents in debates will buy into a Bart Ehrman argument. And they'll say, well, we're really not sure that Jesus said this. We're talking about documents from the first century, from within a matter of years of Jesus, in language spoken by the people in that area at that time, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll buy into people who question whether that's accurate, but... Then we'll turn around and we'll accept that. There is not a shred of evidence that quotation for 600 years after the time of Jesus. 600 years in any language, anywhere. Until someone who lives 700 miles away in a language completely different than the one Jesus spoke to, who had no knowledge of the biblical scriptures, says, well, Jesus said this. And the the Muslim goes, yep, that's what he said. And you go, wait a minute. I can understand if you believe that, but if you believe that, then you're believing that just, well, because God said so. Well, God said Jesus said this over there. Oh, but Bart Ehrman says otherwise. Well, Bart Ehrman doesn't think Jesus said that either. Well, it doesn't matter because that's the Quran. Inconsistency is the sign of a failed argument. 
when my Muslim friends will use all this liberal stuff against the New Testament and then they will not accept it when it comes to the Quran, there's a problem there. Jesus speaks, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, evidently that's what the Quran understands the phrase Allah is Christ, son of Mary. An assertion of the deity of Christ seems to be joining other gods with Allah, which is that what the Trinity teaches? That we have multiple gods? Of course not. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will forbid him the garden. The fire will be his abode. There will for the wrongdoers be no one to help. They do blaspheme who say Allah is one of three. Now, Yusuf Ali really messes this one up. Literally what it says here, it is blasphemy to say Allah is is the third of three. That's what the Arabic says. The third of three. Three who? Who's the three? Well, if you've got Allah and you've got Jesus... Who's the third one? Now, please note the number of the surah. Surah 5. Surah Maida, the table. Keep that in mind, because I think surah 5 will tell us who the three is. If we allow surah 5 to speak for itself. Now, if you want to cut surah 5 up into parts and pieces and say what surah 5.116 says, is it relevant to what surah 5.17 says or 5.72 says, that, that's up to you. But if we just allow Surah 5 to speak for itself, it is blasphemy to say Allah is the third of three, for there is no God except one, Allah. So whatever the context is, it's monotheism, there's only one God, Allah, and I think we're going to find out later on who the third one is. But we'll let the Quran decide that for itself. If they desist not from their word of blasphemy, verily a grievous penalty will befall the blasphemers among them. Why turn they not to Allah and seek His forgiveness? For Allah is all forgiving, most merciful. Now we have a Quranic argument. And you saw a modern application of this Quranic argument last evening in one of the video clips. Listen to it. Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to eat their daily food. See how Allah doth make his signs clear to them, yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. Did you catch the argument? That's the fig tree argument. That's the fig tree argument right there. You see, they had both to eat their daily food. Since Jesus ate food, he can't be Allah because Allah doesn't eat food. That's pretty easy to see, except for one thing. It doesn't say Jesus had to eat his food. It said they had both to eat their daily food. Why would it say both? Why include Mary? Why say Mary had to eat food? We'll get to it, but just notice it. Because allegedly, the fact that both Mary and Jesus eat their daily food is a sign. It's an ayah. See how Allah doth make his signs clear to them. I don't have the Arabic up here, but I think it's mubinun. Yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. Deluded away from the truth. Who are these people? Well, people who believe in the deity of Christ. Keep that in mind. 
Say, will you worship besides the law something which has no power either to harm or benefit you? But a law he it is that heareth and knoweth all things. Say, O people of the book, exceed not in your religion the bounds of what is proper, trespassing beyond the truth, nor fall the vain desires of people who went wrong in times gone by, who misled many and strayed themselves from the even way. So here's this warning, excess, trespassing beyond the truth, following vain desires. I don't see anything here about the corruption of the Torah and the Angel, interestingly enough, but following after people who lead you astray. They themselves strayed from the even way. Now, before we finish Surah 5, let me just point out something about what the Quran says about a law and a son. What does it mean to have a son? Now, what did Christians, before the Quran was ever revealed, believe about Jesus as the Son of God? Were Christians Mormons? No. Now, when I say that, what do I mean? Well, Mormons, Mormons actually might be described by the Quran. This is interesting. This is an interesting, uh, interesting thing to point out. Mormons believe that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as any man, and that he actually had sexual intercourse with the Virgin Mary to create the body of Jesus. That's Mormon theology. Now, the Mormon, poor little Mormon missionary knocking on your front door might not know that. But that is LDS theology. And if you want to see a full documentation of that, see chapter 12 of my book, Is the Mormon My Brother? Where I give page after page after page of the citations of the general authority of the Mormon church as to that teaching. But Christians have never believed that up until Joseph Smith made it up in the middle 1830s. The relationship between the Father and the Son has always been an eternal relationship, not a generative relationship in the sense that God had a wife and had a son. Father and Son have eternally existed as divine persons. It's a relationship description. It is not a procreative relationship in the sense of the Son coming into existence at a point in time through the intermediary of some type of female consort. But I don't think there's any question that that's exactly what the authors of the Quran thought we believed. I don't think there's any question about it at all. Surah 39.4 Had Allah wished to take to himself a son, he could have chosen whom he pleased and of those whom he doth create. But glory to him, he is above such things. He is Allah, the one, the irresistible. Now what kind of sonship is being discussed there? Now someone might say, well now he's talking about the pagan gods. And yeah, the pagan gods did that all the time. But everything we've been reading was addressed to who? Al-Kitab, the people of the book. Now this isn't addressed to Al-Kitab, so I suppose you can say, well, yeah, okay, here clearly it's, you know, he could have chosen whom he pleased out of those whom he doth create. He could have gotten himself a wife, but, but he didn't. Well, let's look at some others. This one's very important, Surah 6106. To him is due the primal origin of the heavens and the earth. How can he have a son? When he hath no consort. My Arabic tutor tells me the word here has taken on a rather negative meaning in the modern context. And it basically means a girlfriend. An illicit girlfriend. In its modern use. How can he have a son when he hath no girlfriend? No wife? No consort? He created all things and he hath full knowledge of all things. Well, the rhetorical question seems to be that this sonship would require some type of female companionship to have the child. How else can it be understood? How can he have a son when he does not have 
a wife, a mate? That's the question that's being asked in Surah 6101. With those things in mind, with that concept of sonship in mind, we turn back to Surah 5, which has already said, do not say three, there is only one God. And has already made the argument, Allah has made his signs clear, his ayah are clear, yet they're deluded away from the truth. What's one of those signs? Well, Jesus and his mother both ate their daily food. And so we turn to Surah 5, 116. And behold, Allah will say, this is on the judgment day, O Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to men, worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of Allah? He will say, glory to you. Never could I say what I had no right to say. Had I said such a thing, you would indeed have known it. You know what is in my heart, though I do not know what is yours in yours, for you know all, you know in full all that is hidden. Now, let's think for just a moment about what it would have been like to be a 14 or 15 year old native of Mecca, tribe Quraysh. You go on caravan. As I said, Mecca had to have caravans to survive. And you go up into Syria. You go up into places where there are Christian churches. And many of the cities you would go into by our standards today would be villages. But there would be a small building and it's a Christian church. This is at the end of the 6th century, let's say around 585, 590, somewhere around in that area. And you're a teenage boy, and you see this building, and teenagers tend to be somewhat curious people. And so you go over and you uh, maybe you look inside. What are you going to see in a church, in a village in Syria, at the end of the 6th century? Well, by this point in time, all the Trinitarian controversies are over with. I mean, Council of Nicaea is 325, Constantinople 381, Chalcedon 451. Uh, so that's, that's long past. You're going to... Already there has been a great exaltation of Mary that has developed by this time. Certainly nothing compared to what Rome's done just over the past couple hundred years. Uh, but you still have got a great exaltation of Mary at this point. You're going to have statues. The iconoclastic controversy is still in the future at this point, but it's coming. And what are you going to see in the artwork or statuary in one of these small churches? Well, probably going to see some representations of God as creator of all things. I mean, you don't have the finger quite yet. That's um, you know, uh, Leonardo, I think, comes up with that one, or Michelangelo, whoever it was. But uh, you, you've got images of God as creator. You certainly have a lot of crucifixes. Crucifixes have been around a long time, so you're going to have Jesus on a cross. 
what are you not going to have that would stand out as a representation of deity? A spirit. What's the spirit going to be pictured of? A dove. Dove's not going to really necessarily ring any bells with the young Meccan boy. But what else? What's going to be very prominent by this time in the artwork? A woman. A woman holding a baby named Mary. A baby who ends up on that cross. Say not three. Did you say unto men, worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of Allah? I can see where Muhammad would have gotten that. But Allah would never be so confused. So there it is. And I did a debate in London with uh, an Islamic apologist and I kept pushing. What do these these mean? He kept saying, well, you know, there are clear portions of the Quran and there are unclear portions of the Quran. And the fascinating thing was at the end of that debate, everybody in the audience realized I was the one arguing that the Quran is actually clear in what it says, and the Muslim was saying, we don't know. <laughs> that was amazing. That was, that was truly one of the amazing results of that evening. Uh, was that, that he cut Surah 5116 off from Surah 572-78, and there's a preceding section, verse 17, I 17, 18, which is relevant as well. And he cut them up. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's the same Surah. And it's talking about the same thing. It's using the same language. Oh, well, but, but we don't know. that they, they, they might be referring to different things. Really? Seems to be the conclusion of the same thing. Excesses and all the rest of this stuff. And Worship me and my mother as gods in derogation of the law. That is not what Christians have ever done or ever believed. Now, some people have said, well, actually there was this group uh, that, that actually did worship Mary. And um, some of the early church writers refer to a group of people that worship Mary. Well, A, they probably had passed away by the time of Muhammad. And B, are you really going to tell me they don't exist anymore? Don't really have evidence they continue to exist at that time. But let, let's say this is... Are you telling me that all this stuff in the Quran is written down about a group that has passed away and this is all irrelevant now? Is that what it's about? Hmm... Now, when you read this thing, when you read the rest of the verse, it said, You know what is in my heart, though I I do not know what is in yours, for you know in full all that is hidden. I hope a verse came through your mind. It's such a shame. You know, Hadith sources say that Muhammad had an uncle who was a Christian. Um, But it doesn't seem like whoever the Christians were he encountered really gave him a full biblical presentation but when I see that phrase I think this next slide has the text I am hoping for yeah I wish Muhammad had known this verse Jesus says all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him you hear the words of Jesus Jesus says no one knows the Father except the Son 
And if you really want to know God, if you want to know the Father, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him, the only way to truly know Him is through the revelation of Jesus. Now that's really offensive in our world today because that's exclusivistic language. That's Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But in the Quran, Jesus says, I don't know about what's in your heart, though you know what's in mine, but the Jesus of history said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. I do know what is in your heart. And I can reveal you perfectly to anyone I will to reveal him to. That is a wonderful promise, and that existed long before uh, Muhammad went into a cave in 610 uh, A.D. Now, probably get a start here. May not get all of it done. We'll see. One of the primary ayahs you need to know, that you need to write down as a Christian in speaking to Muslims, is Surah 4, 157. Speaking of the Jews, it says, They said in boast, We killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary. Now remember, Christ, that's why, again, I, I, I wish I'd changed all this over to Sahih International. I'll try to remember to do so. It's Messiah. Mashiach. We killed Messiah, Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary. Immediately, let me just stop and say, how many Jews have you ever heard called Jesus Messiah? That's always struck me as odd. Christ is not his last name. That means Messiah. And in, in an Arabic, there's no question about that. It's right there. But anyways, we killed Messiah Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of Allah. But they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. Should be halaham. And those who differ therein are full of doubts, with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For of a surety they killed him not. Verse 158 says, Nay, Allah raised him up, Rafahu, unto himself. And Allah is exalted in power and wise. As a result, the majority of the Muslims in the world, and there are different views on this, and here in the West, westernized Muslims tend to back away from this for reasons we're about to see. But the majority of the Muslims in the world hold to some form of substitution theory. And that is, it says, they killed him not nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And sometimes they'll come up with really expanded translations where it says, and so someone else was made to appear like him. That's not what it says. But they'll come up with that. And they'll actually say that Allah took Jesus up to himself, Surah 4158, elevated him, took him up, I remember when Shabir Ali was making an argument based upon, it was fascinating, a biblical archaeology review article that talked about a cave that had been found in the garden in the, in, on, on Mount of Olives, where Jesus and the apostles may have stayed, and it had a small hole for light that went up to the sky, and that's how Jesus would have gone straight up. See. Jesus is taken up to Allah. And someone else is made to look like Jesus. Now normally, that's Judas. Normally it's said that Judas is made to look like Jesus. And that's why he's crying out from the cross. Because it's not me. 
I remember years ago, long before I really started any serious study of Islam, I had a, a Muslim send me an internet article, one of those ones with all sorts of different colors and bold and underlining and all that kind of stuff in the you know, you know, early 1990s, in which he proved it wasn't Judas, it was Simon the Cyrene. Simon the Cyrene was the one that was made to look like Jesus and was crucified on the cross. Now I mentioned that Westernized Muslims tend to stay away from this. In fact, let me see here if I have the quote real quick. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, that's the Yusuf Ali quote. Uh, let me see if it, Yeah, here it is. Uh, Muhammad Assad, in his big, huge translation of the Quran, it's published by CARE, Council on American and Islamic Relations. Notice, compare Surah 355, where God says, Jesus, verily I shall cause thee to die and shall exalt them unto me. The verb Rafa, who, literally he raised him or elevated him, has always, whenever the act of Raf, elevating of a human being, is attributed to God, the meaning of honoring or exalting. Nowhere in the Quran is there any warrant for the popular belief that God has taken up Jesus bodily in his lifetime into heaven. And when you ask a lot of, of westernized uh, Muslims, they'll back away from the substitution theory. Well, Allahu Alam, God knows. Instead of giving you specifics. Why? It's real simple. If the substitutionary theory is, is true, then a law started Christianity by mistake. Think about it. It says, think about it, so it was made to appear to them. Who's the them? I've asked my, my, uh, my Arabic tutor who was born in Syria and grew up there and was educated there. He's been here in the States about six years. Uh, a pastor, a Christian pastor. He's never a Muslim. Um, and we have, I have probably bored the poor man to tears how many times we've gone over this text in Arabic and I have, I have been asking grammatical and syntactical questions. Could it mean this? What if the vowel pointing was like this? You know, he probably just doesn't even want to show up and do that anymore. But the, the issue here is who is the them? There's only one antecedent. It's the Jews. But they don't believe that it was only the Jews that were deceived by what Allah did in making someone else look like Jesus. Because evidently, all of his disciples believed the same thing. And they went out and started proclaiming the resurrection. And evidently, the Romans were deceived. Everybody was. In fact, Allah did such a good job that the result was Christianity, which has produced more acts of shirk than any other religion ever has. So if God made somebody else look like Jesus... Man alive, did he make a mistake? But you see, that doesn't fit either because the Quran actually promises that the true followers of Jesus would be victorious over anyone else until the end of time. So that doesn't work either. And so a lot of them just want to go because they realize this is... And you see, there's a problem here. There's about 40 Arabic words in Surah 4.157. About 40. Depending on how you count particles and stuff like that. This is the only ayah in the Quran that says this. Surah 19, Surah Maryam, uses the exact same language of John the Baptist that it uses of Jesus is death. Now we know John the Baptist died. He was beheaded. That normally, beheading is 99.99% certain to result in death. It really is. 
fact, it's 100% certain that it resolved. Exact same language is used at Jesus' death. Surah 3.55 in natural Arabic speaks of Jesus' death. This is the only ayah that denies Jesus' death. And when we go to the Hadith literature, what did Muhammad say about it? For 300 years after his death, not a single Muslim ever said a word about remembering anything Muhammad ever said about this verse. Not a word. There is no commentary. It's like it didn't exist. How can that be? Poof! 40 Arabic words written 600 years after the events is the only basis for denying the crucifixion of Jesus? Yeah. Hmm. So, notice what Yusuf Ali says in his commentary. The Orthodox Christian churches make it a cardinal point of their doctrine that his life was taken on the cross, that he died and was buried, and on the third day he rose in the body with his wounds intact and walked about and conversed and ate with his disciples and was afterward taken up bodily to heaven. This is necessary for the theological doctrine of blood sacrifice and vicarious atonement for sins, which is rejected by Islam. The Quranic teaching is that Christ was not crucified nor killed by the Jews, notwithstanding certain apparent circumstances which produced that illusion in the minds of some of his enemies. What? It produced that illusion in the minds of his followers, not just his enemies. It was his followers that were proclaiming the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His enemies just responded to the apostolic proclamation. That's an illusion? Hmm. Interesting. Now, it's important to understand, however, you can walk down a street. I had a friend who did some missions work, I recall, in Uganda. And here you are talking with people who quite literally live in mud huts, if they're lucky enough to have a mud hut. And you get into conversation with them via your translator. And here are people in that context who as soon as you start proclaiming Christ crucified will say, but how could Allah allow such a highly favored prophet, one that he sent into this world to die in such a despicable way? I don't understand it. It's a stumbling block to them, just as it was a stumbling block to who? To the Jews. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross is a scandal on. It's a stumbling block. That's why I emphasized in the earlier presentation, you must push the reality that Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. This commandment I've received of my Father. And that beautiful Carmen Christie in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He did not consider that equality he had with the Father something to be held on to at all costs, but he made himself of no reputation. Not he was made, reflexive verb. He made himself of no reputation. It's voluntary. No one took his life from him, he gave it to accomplish 
the very purpose that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had chosen to accomplish in eternity past. They have to understand that. Because this is a stumbling block. A huge stumbling block. To understand the preaching of the cross itself. Now, as you can see, there's more to come. We've still got this evening to go. And I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to go there. I know, where, I know some of the things I need to cover, but there's so many more things to, to talk about.